Hello, and welcome back to Learn It From a Layman. I'm Carl Christensen. I'm joined by Matt and Tim, and not just your back this time, Tim. Um, I think we That's got right. most of you. <laughs> most of me. You'll never have all of me, Carl. <laughs> uh, good. Good. I'm glad we won't. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, we've taken a couple weeks off here for those of uh, those of you uh, that listen to our podcast routinely. A couple weeks off. Had uh, some traveling going on. Bopped about to various parts of the United States. So, um, uh, yeah, we're back, though, and we're back with a vengeance. Uh, and we are going to do World War II Part 3, colon, 1943. Uh, it came to my attention that I entitled our first World War II podcast, The Basics of World War II. <laughs> And now we're doing individual years, which doesn't sound really basic as far as World War II coverage goes. But uh, I get to name the podcasts, and so uh, too bad. Um, we're going to stick with the basics of World War II Part 3, and there will be a Part 4 and maybe a Part 5. So, uh, Because at Learn It From a Layman, consistency is our number one priority. <laughs> Huzzah! <laughs> Uh, yes, we're consistently uh, accurate in our naming. Okay. Um, well, with that, I think we'll... So those of you that have not listened to our previous podcasts, if you're just jumping in for 1943, uh, maybe you have some fascination with that year in particular, uh, it'll uh, whatever floats your boat. Uh, uh, for most of you, go back and listen to the first two podcasts first. Uh, World War Two, uh, Part One and Part Two, and this is Part Three. And Matt, take uh, take it from there. Okay. So really quick, at the end of 1942, the different theaters are are, are throughout 1942. We've seen a, a start to change in momentum from the Axis to the Allies. In the Pacific, the Japanese have suffered a couple major defeats at Midway and are in the process of suffering a, a final defeat in, in Guadalcanal. In North Africa, Rommel has been having great success for most of 1942, but with Allied landings in Morocco during Operation Torch and the British and French pushing out from Egypt, he's now his, his forces in North Africa are beginning to get boxed in and he's running into some major problems. In Russia, during 1942, the Germans kicked off Case Blue, which was a significant campaign uh, to take Stalingrad and the Caucasus oil fields, and this does not go well. And we talked about how Stalingrad ended in complete disaster for the German armies. And up in England, the United States is putting together bombardment forces which are beginning to execute raids over occupied Europe. So that's kind of the state of the world in you know as we're beginning 1943. And we'll we'll go through this chronologically starting as well you start in January and in the middle of January 1943 the allies hold a, an important conference between leaders, uh, and this is Churchill, Roosevelt, and actually two leaders of the the French forces, the the resistance leader Charles de Gaulle, and uh, Roosevelt's would be leader, um, whose name I'm going to get wrong, Giraud or Giraud. I, I'm not sure. I, I apologize. I do not pronounce French names well. Uh, but this conference in Casablanca. That's what we have, that's what we have Tim for. Oh, no, no. We, <laughs> we. <laughs> All right. Anyway, this this conference in North Africa at, at Casablanca is where Churchill and Roosevelt agree on what they call an unconditional surrender doctrine. We're not going to have Germany bargaining. We're not going to have them say, oh, let us keep this or let us keep that. They are going to capitulate or be annihilated is the plan. Either we're going to beat them completely or not at all. 
and so they agree on that. Stalin is not at this conference. He's, well, dealing with other things. Uh, but th but that's where the unconditional surrender doctrine is established, and that becomes the British and the American policy going forward. Towards the end of the month, uh, back up in Russia uh, and Stalingrad, I, I alluded to this in the last podcast. Go read that for more detail. But this is where the Battle of Stalingrad really kind of comes to a close. Uh, in in uh, on the 21st of January, the Red Army takes the last airfield around Stalingrad, which means that the Luftwaffe can no longer bring in supplies to the beleaguered German troops. And they are, at that point, they're without hope of resupply. They're out of ammo, they're out of medicines, they're out of food, they're just out of everything. And as I mentioned last time, on at the end of the month on the 30th, Adolf Hitler promotes the German commander, uh, General Paulus, to field marshal, pointing out that field marshals do not surrender, uh, implying that he will, e Paulus will either conquer the Russians or he will commit suicide. Paulus refuses to commit suicide and surrenders the next day. So on the 31st, the Battle of Stalingrad kind of comes to a close there with a disastrous loss for the German army. And this is the first real German loss that is made public in Germany, where it gets out that our army just got, or, or, or this particular army just got annihilated. Uh, and so that starts to become uh, one of the major turning points on that Eastern Front campaign between Germany and Russia. Germany will have some other successes, but by the end of 1943, as we will see, they will be on the run. It surprises uh, me that the the, um, the Nazis would allow information like that. I mean, I, back in 1943, you had more control over media as well i'd imagine as far right. as and, and you don't have twitter or right. telegram <laughs> or whatever i don't know um but yeah somehow this gets out and, and i don't know the particulars of that story but it's yeah. um, a publicly acknowledged thing and i mean this is large there's soldiers writing letters home right and suddenly those letters aren't coming uh there, there's only so much you can do to cover up the loss of hundreds of thousands of men yeah. Um, and uh, we will refrain from further discussion about we will just refrain given where we are right now um, anyway other things wrapping up 1942 actions the Guadalcanal campaign has its last major naval battle where the Japanese actually kind of win this one this is the Battle of Rennell Island and it's a an evacuation operation by the Japanese. They're trying to get their few remaining forces off of Guadalcanal. Uh, the U.S. Navy is not wanting that to happen. They want these people either captured or killed. There is an engagement between a small Japanese uh, task force and a small American task force. The, the U.S. Navy loses the heavy cruiser USS Chicago and one destroyer. And they do manage to successfully evacuate their remaining soldiers from Guadalcanal. That's the last of a lengthy series of naval battles that have been fought around Guadalcanal starting way back in 1942 in the summer. Uh, elsewhere, you have the beginning of, of a major operation. The United States has put a number of bomber forces in Europe throughout 1942, and they've begun in, they've begun launching raids on occupied France, uh, other occupied countries. But on the 27th of January, the U.S. Army Air Corps launches its first air raid on Germany itself, and this will continue throughout uh, until the end of the war in Europe. Uh, and it's the first of many, many, many raids. Launched from Britain? Yes. Uh, the Throughout 1943, um, US, most U.S. bombers hitting targets in Europe are going to be in the U.K. 
The other ones are going to be in North Africa, and we will get to one of those raids in August. Hey, one of the questions about the raids, so if they're launched from Britain, we mentioned earlier, and I think it was our first podcast, that the uh, distance that the German, the, the Nazis, the Luftwaffe had to fly gave them like a disadvantage in the Battle of Britain. Yes. Now we're launching uh, raids from Britain into Germany. Are we dealing with the same issues or what kind of planes are we? We're, we're dealing with different planes and different airframes. Um the Germans, the, the Luftwaffe never fielded real strategic bombers in any kind of number. Um, you know, four engine heavy bombers were pretty much a, a British and an American thing. There were, towards the end of the war, there were a, a very f- limited numbers of, of what could be considered German heavy bombers, and they showed up too late to do anything. So during the Battle of Britain, you had medium bombers, two engines, limited endurance. Uh, but those weren't the ones I was referring to in that first podcast, and I should be clear on that. During the Battle of Britain, the Germans started to employ fighter bombers, which were single-engine aircraft with a single bomb strapped underneath. And they would go over there and, and attempt to do something and have about five minutes to do it. Because you're in a small aircraft flying from somewhere in France to somewhere in England carrying a pretty biggish bomb. And and that was pretty difficult. Um, likewise, for German fighters escorting those medium bombers, again, you're in a small single-engine fighter with small fuel tanks. And by the time you get where you're going, you don't have a lot of fuel left. Now, this was a major problem for our allied fighter escorts during 1943 as well, because our fighter aircraft that we would send to go along with the bombers could not escort the bombers all the way to their targets in Germany. They would have to turn back after however many miles, leaving the bombers to carry on unescorted to fend for themselves against German fighters who were now on, on who had the home field advantage. This was not always great. Oh, that sounds um, bad. Yeah. Uh, and, and we'll go a little more into depth in, in some of that when we talk about um, some of the major raids towards the end of 1943. Uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, bombers versus fighters and, and which way you're going. Uh, we could easily reach Germany with our heavy bombers, but not with our fighters, not for some time to come. So okay. anyway, back to uh, February and to the rest of the world. Um, in North Africa, the Allies are continuing to press Rommel, and by February 5th, they have Libya pretty much secure. Um I'm going to jump ahead into uh, into March just a little bit. Um, March sees Rommel's last real offensive attempt in North Africa before he is is pushed back and actually flees. Uh, and I kind of spoiled what happens. The last podcast I mentioned they, they lost a, a ton of men. Uh, but in March, the Battle of Medinin, I probably said that wrong, uh, takes place. This is Rommel has all these Allied forces there, um, and and there and he's he has a what is called the Marath Line in Tunisia, and it's a, a natural formation that is not easy for tanks to cross through. It's it's rocky. It's just not something that is easily breachable. Um, but the Allies are all lining up to push through the Marath Line and and take the rest of Tunisia and obliterate Rommel's forces. So before they can do that, he launches a spoiling attack against these mustering allied forces, thinking that if he can strike them quickly, he can foil their plans to do their own offensive. Well, this would have worked really well, except for the allied code breakers. Uh, They are reading Rommel's mail. They know that this is coming and they and, and the Allied forces just sit there and wait as the German forces roll closer and closer. And when everybody is in artillery range, uh, the Allies open up and the advancing Germans are very quickly pushed back with heavy losses. That was Rommel's last action. After that, he is um, he goes back to Europe and shortly after um in in May, 
Tunis is completely captured and the Africa Corps surrenders on the 13th, uh, losing 250,000 prisoners to the Allies. And that is effectively the end of the North African campaign as far as the Germans are concerned. Um, and from there, North Africa will serve as a base that I'll talk about later for additional bombing raids and for mustering forces to, to move into, well, to, you know, other places. Um, but let's jump back to February. That, that was North Africa. There's other things happening in the world in February. Um, one of them is going on up in Norway, uh, something called Operation Gunnerside. Uh, th- this is an attack on a Norwegian, well, German-Norwegian heavy water plant. And for those who are unfamiliar with nuclear weapons design and development, like most of the world, um, heavy water was a a necessary part of nuclear weapons production in theory. At the time, no one had built a nuclear weapon, but the Germans had an idea that this was a possibility and they were working on it. And so for the layman, heavy water is not water that is heavy. It's a particular chemical composition of water. Yes. That makes it heavy. <laughs> um, anyway, so yes. they're, they're working on, on developing heavy water up in, up in Norway in a plant called Vermork. Vermok? Yeah, Vermok. Uh, in 1942, the Allies get wind of this, and they launch uh, a number of Norwegian commandos and some royal engineers into Norway something called Operation Freshman. It does not go well. The Royal Engineers that they tried to fly in by glider are not able to be dropped in the right place. Uh, They are all either killed in crash landings or captured by the SS, tortured and executed. The Norwegian commandos that were landed are actually okay. And they're, well, okay. They're freezing in caves and subsisting on moss and lichen, but they're alive. Um, Your definition of okay. Yes. Well, the 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 Allied um, SOE Special Operations Executive um, gets wind that they're still out there, and they plan a follow up to go after this heavy water plant at Vermok, and this is Operation Gunnerside. They land a few more Norwegian commandos. Uh, and they managed to link up with the ones that survived uh, from the freshman operation. And on 28 February, they execute an attack. Um, the, the Germans have allowed the security at this plant to kind of slacken over the winter between October 1942 and, and where we are now in February 43. But there is a a bridge leading up to this plant that goes over a very large ravine and that bridge is well guarded and so the Norwegians being awesome decide forget the bridge we're just going to go into this ravine wade across this frozen river climb up the other side and weasel our way into this plant through like a maintenance tunnel and they do that and they plant some charges and they detonate uh a the the no, it's it's the electrolysis chambers in this plant, um, but they they cripple the plant. The Germans are just are are understandably annoyed. Um, they still attempt to keep going, uh, but they've that attack in February sets them back months and months and months. And by the time that they get things up and running again, much later in 1943. The U.S. bombs the plant with a a large force of heavy bombers that pretty much make it non-tenable. And shortly after that, the Germans decide we're going to take what remaining heavy water samples we have left. We're going to put them on a boat, ship them down to Germany, cut our losses and, and try to keep going in Germany. The SOE and the Norwegians respond by putting mines on the boat and sinking it. Um, so this is a, a great series of, of accomplishments by these Norwegian commandos supported by the, the SOE that just completely kneecapped the Germans' uh, 
nuclear ambition throughout World War II. Um, so that that was kind of the the final thing in in February here. Um, well, February and then extending into October, and then that ferry was actually attacked in uh, a year later in February 1944. So you, you got some bonus chronology in this podcast. Uh, but let's move up to, to March of 1943. Um, I already talked about what was happening in North Africa, but in the oceans, things are, are going a little bit differently. The Allies have really started to move on New Guinea now, and the Japanese are, are trying to reinforce that island. They occupy it. Um, the Allies are trying to take it. On the 2nd of March, the Battle of the Bismarck Sea is fought, where uh, a number of, uh, I believe both forces lose a destroyer, but the Japanese lose a number of troop transports and they're unable to get uh, a, a lot of troops perish as those ships are sunken. So they're unable to reinforce the garrison that they have on that island. On the other ocean, the or the Atlantic side, things are going far worse for the Allies. The German U-boats have been just having a great time torpedoing everything uh, off the coast of the Americas. And in May, I'm sorry, in March, the losses are so bad, uh, 82 ships are sunk and for the loss of 12 U-boats. And it's to the point where people in Britain are doubting whether or not uh, England can continue the war because they're running out of supplies. Uh, they're being starved to death. And so this is the the most dire point in the Battle of the Atlantic, where the Germans are completely succeeding in this maritime siege of, of Britain, cutting off its supplies and just with near impunity. Uh, and, and that turns around in the space of two months. And it's not necessarily any one thing that does it. But it's a convergence of a number of technologies being fielded and, and being put into use and a number of, of tactical changes or rather changes to tactics, uh, as well as an increased number of escort ships as a result of an American shipbuilding program. This is something that I didn't talk about in previous podcasts, but following Pearl Harbor, the U.S. Navy realized we don't have any ships left. And so the United States embarked on a massive shipbuilding program, the likes of which are an industrial effort of this magnitude is rare. We started producing hundreds upon hundreds of warships, and some of these started making it into the field in early 1943. And by April and May of 1943, all of those convoys of merchant ships are now starting to run around with additional escorts, and you also have roving patrols hunting for U-boats. One of the other advances was in airborne radar, and you asked me about that in a previous podcast. Well, the British had actually developed a big, bulky airborne radar that you could put on a large, multi-engined uh, patrol aircraft, and it used a... Um, a wavelength that was you know meters long it was pretty low frequency uh the germans responded by developing a, a, a countermeasure called metox metox i don't know metox um that could detect when those radar emissions were coming in and would immediately alert the german captain that yes yeah, something is out there with a radar and then if that radar started to get closer to you the the METOX would alert you that not only is a radar out there, but it's headed toward you now. You should move. And so you could find, in theory, a German U-boat with this uh, meter wavelength radar. But by the time you got there, it was gone, uh, submerged. And, and the radar doesn't work very well when your submarine is underwater. Well, in early 1943, the British developed a... Uh, centimeter wavelength radar that you know it's in a different frequency band metox does not pick it up and it's starting to get fitted in in large numbers to these patrol aircraft 
And suddenly they're able to see German U-boats running on the surface, which is where they normally run. They would only submerge for attack um, because when they're underwater, they're on batteries and batteries only last so long. Um, But anyway, you could see these German U-boats and they didn't know you were coming. And so we started to get much greater success with aerial attack on U-boats. all of the escort ships and, and some of the developments in the anti-submarine weaponry was really coming into its own. And, you know, you go from March of 1943, where Germany, or rather, I'm sorry, Britain is wondering, can we actually continue fighting, to April, where the, the, the tables have turned to May, which is in the U-boat community in Germany known as Black May where they lose 43 U-boats, sinking only 58 merchant ships. That's still a lot of merchant ships. Um, But 43 U-boats is a lot of U-boats. And in the Atlantic theater, uh, that's worldwide. In the Atlantic theater, they only sink 34 merchant ships and they lose 34 U-boats. So they're losing one submarine for every merchant ship they take out. And it goes from there. And by the end of May... Uh, Admiral Donitz, the German uh, commander of the U-boat force, uh, recalls most of them um, from from duty. And that is really the turning point for the Battle of the Atlantic. And from there on, shipping supplies to England is not exactly safe, but it's not the disaster that it was earlier. And England is able to continue to receive supply in greater and greater numbers and war material flows from the United States to Europe with which with much less uh, impediment going forward. Um, with that, let me back up really quick to April that I kind of glossed over. There's another significant event, oh, oh, two more, three more. <laughs> Sorry. This is how this podcast became it, five it kind, parts. Yeah, it, it is. And I'm sorry. I will try to speed along here. Um, right. The in, in the Pacific, the Japanese forces are led by Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto, who was a brilliant admiral, really knew what he was doing, really knew what he was getting into, and appreciated the magnitude of the consequences that he believed he would face by attacking the United States. Uh, he didn't he was not optimistic long term, but he was a brilliant admiral and strategist, um, and we knew that. And we could also read his mail, uh, in, intercept uh, the Japanese radio traffic, and we had their codes. And we knew that he would be flying from a certain island to another certain island on the 18th. And the United States uh, Army Air Forces put together a very long-range mission to try to intercept him in his flight and it worked and they caught him in the air and a squadron of p-38 lightnings essentially ambushed uh, his aircraft and and the escorting aircraft and he was shot down and killed Um, that really hurt the japanese Um, they they had other leaders but yamamoto was uh, he, he was one of the best and the united states took him out in April. Elsewhere in in the world, um, on the 19th in Poland, uh, there's an, an event known as the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And I, I mentioned, we, we talked about in previous podcasts, how the Jews were being progressively denied of more and more basic rights and then uh, culminating in a policy of, of relocation followed by extermination. Well, part of that was that Jewish populations were sequestered in, in portions of different cities called ghettos, which were then sealed off. And you just had this Jewish section guarded by Germans or German-friendly forces. Uh, and that was that. Well, in, on, on April 19th, the the Jews in the ghetto in Warsaw started an uprising. They they knew what they were getting into, and they knew what would likely happen, and and what was likely happen did happen. Uh, 
the uprising lasted for about a month. Um, a number of Germans were were killed. Uh, 13,000 plus Jews were killed outright. And following that, somewhere around 40,000 were sent to uh, immediately sent to death camps. Um, so it, it's just another chapter in, in the tragedy of, of the Nazi oppression of the Jewish people uh, that continued throughout World War II. Um, finally, for April, you have a very grim military deception operation um, launched down in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, I, I believe it's a British serviceman has been killed. And the, the Allied leaders repurpose his body, uh, basically putting in a fake document in his pocket and launching him out a torpedo tube of an Allied submarine. His body washes up on shore in Spain. It's recovered by locals. The document is recovered by locals. And the document says, you know, top secret, the Allies are definitely going to land at this point in Italy on this day. Uh, the Germans get that document, and they planned for the Allies to come and land at this point on that day. Uh, shortly after that, the Allies land on Sicily on a different day, uh, and we will get to that. Uh, but it it was one of the it, it was a successful, if kind of gruesome, deception operation that really threw off the German plans. Um, moving into May of 1943, uh, one major event that I haven't already touched on was the Dam Buster Raid. Uh, some of you may have heard of this, but hydroelectric dams were a major source of electricity for Germany. And in, in particular, in the Ruhr Valley, there were three major dams uh, that were providing a large amount of electrical power to a large amount of German war industry. And the Royal Air Force High Command wanted to take that out. And they developed the tactic and some equipment whereby a heavy bomber would fly over the water at an altitude of a few feet and drop this cylindrical-shaped bomb that would skip over the water, whack into a dam, sink below the surface of the water at the foot of the dam, and then detonate. Um, uh, maneuvering a heavy four-engine British bomber down a narrow river valley at night, carrying this giant bomb uh, while being shot at by Germans, is not fun. This sounds remarkably like the Death Star run. You know, almost. <laughs> Except this was real. Target. Yeah, and they did it, and it worked. Um, crazy. On, on, I believe it was May 16th, uh, number 617 Squadron, which today, within the Royal Air Force, uh, is the Dam Busters. They launched this raid, and they go after three dams, and they breach two of them. Uh, causes massive flooding, the entire Ruhr area loses power, and it, it it is a brilliant success. It takes a while to get this to get repairs in place, um, but that's kind of one of the legendary raids of World War II, the Dam Buster raid. Um, so there you have that. Are any of them Rogue Squadron? Uh, no, but I mean. Okay, Star Wars is cool and all, <laughs> but these guys actually did it. Yes, it's much so. cooler to be um, part of the RAF, but yeah. it would have been really cool if they had been the RAF and Rogue Squadron at the same time. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll write that suggestion to uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson, see if uh, okay. he wants to rename his... No. Um, <laughs> all right, let's, let's stick with the British doing great things. In June, prior to the Allied invasion of Sicily... Uh, the British take uh, Pantelleria in the Mediterranean. They capture 11,000 Italians there. And now the stage is set for, um, for July, wherein Operation Husky is the invasion of Sicily. And thanks to that aforementioned deception operation, the Germans and the Italians do not think that this is going to happen where it happens. Uh, and the Allies invade Sicily. 
they captured Palermo on the 22nd of July. On the 25th of July, Mussolini is arrested. <laughs> and by, uh, by September, uh, I'm jumping way ahead, Italy has formally surrendered to the Allies, and, and we'll see how that goes. Um, jumping back a little bit to the Pacific, um, in June, you also have the start of what became known as an island hopping campaign. Uh, and this was a strategy in the South Pacific whereby rather than go to each island held by the Japanese and bloodily fight our way across it, um, either annihilating the Japanese occupiers or, you know, heaven forbid, getting beaten back ourselves, uh, the U.S. Navy and, and the U.S. Marines adopted a strategy of let's not attack each island. Let's attack the island behind the island that they are on. And so if the Japanese have a large presence on some South Pacific island, we're going to go behind it. We're going to attack the next island in line to Japan. We're going to set up camp there. And uh, you guys in that island that we skipped, well, good luck getting resupplied. And that was what they did. Uh, so June 21st, the Marines land on New Georgia. They take that and they continue jumping over Japanese-held islands uh, in the South Pacific through much of the rest of the war. In the Central Pacific, the the strategy is different. And there are many times where the Marines do go head-to-head -head with Japanese defenders in some very, very bloody campaigns. Um, but that island hopping concept kicks off in June of 1943. Um, let's go up to the eastern front of, of Germany and the Soviet Union for July. Um, I mentioned things have not been going great for the Germans since the, the Battle of Stalingrad, but they've still had some successes. Uh, they've gone in, uh, the Soviet Union has retaken Kharkov. Well, that's great. The Germans re-retake Kharkov shortly after that. Um, but in July, the, the Battle of Kursk is uh, Operation Citadel for the Germans, kicks off on uh, the 4th or 5th of July. And this is a, a, a battle of a scale that is... Huh. Well, when we started doing this podcast, I was going to say it's a battle of a scale of armored warfare that the world has never seen before or since. And then Russia that's... went into the Ukraine, and now I'm not sure that's true. But anyway, yeah, so the Battle of Kursk is, um, is, is a horrific place to be on either side. Uh, on the 12th of July, as part of the Battle of Kursk, you have the Battle of, I'm going to get this wrong, Prokhorovka, or, or something like that. Forgive my pronunciation. But this is, until recently, the largest tank battle um, in, in history, where G German and, and Russian armored formations just blast each other. Throughout the Battle of Kursk, the kill ratio is about six to one in favor of the Germans. Um, wow. And they still lose. Uh, in in Prokhorovka itself, the Germans lose an unknown number between 40 and 80. The Soviets lose an unknown number between three and 400. And the Soviets still win just with numbers. Um and, and that's what they were able to do at the time because they had a phenomenally large army with that, that was just um, completely outclassed in terms of lethality, but completely outclassed the Germans in terms of numbers. Uh, and so this from from this point on, with the German defeat at Kursk, the Germans don't win another real engagement on the Eastern Front for the remainder of the war. And from there, they begin retreating and they stay in retreat up until they completely surrender in 1945. Spoilers for part five of this podcast. Sorry. 
I think World War II spoilers are completely fair game at this point. I guess so. <laughs> I'm always surprised. Um, elsewhere in July, um, Adolf Hitler is briefed on a ongoing project in Germany, uh, the V2 rocket, which is going to be one of these uh, wonder weapons, Wunderwaffen that is going to change the tide of the war and, and just obliterate the allies. And it's the world's first ballistic missile where you are guided ballistic missile and you, you fire this thing off. It flies over to wherever you've aimed it and splashes down and, and detonates in London or whatever. Hitler is so impressed by the briefing that he gets and the footage that he sees of, of some of these tests that he wants to order these into production immediately and the Germans begin work on uh, facilities to mass produce. They want to do 2,000 V2s a month. Uh, and, and these are lethal. They, they come in at supersonic speeds, so you get no audible warning that one of these is about to hit you. And they're moving so fast that no defenses that exist at the time have a reasonable chance of intercepting them. Um, they're not able to be countered if once they're launched and so the allies get wind that this is a thing and counter it before they're able to be launched by launching massive campaigns to hunt and bomb v2 production test and launch facilities and a number of v2s are fired throughout the war and they are terrifying they're they're some of the first terror weapons um and it becomes a major allied priority to find and knock out v2 infrastructure um, with that, the final event for July of 43 is the Hamburg air raids where the United States, uh, and, and England bomb Hamburg and they bomb it for eight days straight. And the bombing is so intense that it actually creates a firestorm and, and a firestorm is a technical term for an actual phenomenon where temperatures are so heated that sheets of fire are just blown around. Uh, you get massive winds and you get massive temperatures and it is, uh, you, you, you don't survive if you're in it, uh, not, not even close. Uh, and so Hamburg is, the large parts of it are, are completely ravaged by, this, uh, by these air raids and the resultant firestorm. Um, and this, this is, is, sorry, go ahead. Is this indiscriminate bombing? Are we hitting? Is, are the allies hitting uh, military targets, or is this at this point uh, just load up? Yeah, so so this is a great point in the post World War II Nuremberg trials. Um, the allies did not levy the charge of bombing civilian targets against the Germans so much uh, because yeah, the allies did that too. And you can make the rationale that, well, all of those guys, uh, the, the British in particular, um, it's hard to bomb a factory at night. And remember, the British are doing the night bombing. Um, that's hard. You can't see. Uh, what is easy to do is to find the neighborhoods where all of the factory workers work and completely level that to the ground at night. And so that's what they did. Um all of these guys who were working at the Messerschmitt factory, the Krupp Arms Works, um, the U-boat the factories, uh, any of these things, if there was a factory nearby and low-quality housing, the RAF was probably going to go after it. Um, the U.S., on the other hand, tried to do daylight precision bombing, and we thought we could do that because we weren't thinking all the way through. Um but the U.S. actually had uh, something called the Norden Bombsite. It was an, essentially an early mechanical computer, and it was really very adept at looking at your aircraft's airspeed and the wind conditions and where you were and where your target was and how high and what you were carrying and all of these things. And based on all of that data, it would put the crosshairs of your little bomb site exactly where your bombs were going to land. And so the U.S. believed that from high altitude, 25,000 feet or more, we could very precisely bomb 
specific military or industrial targets. And so we tried to do that a lot. Um, didn't always work. Bombs would be blown off target. Fog would make things hard. And in, in the case of the target obscured, you either carry your bombs home, which means that you're slow and heavy and spend way more time being shot at by the Germans, or you dump your bombs where you can and get out of there. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I'd have to look it up, but I, I don't know if Hamburg was the result of night bombing, daylight bombing, or a combination. But some of these, it was just, this city has to go. Um, and and intentional or not, Hamburg, now Hamburg was not completely destroyed here, but it was um, it was a major raid with a lot right. of casualties. Sure. So, and again, now I would have said war is not fought that way anymore. <sighs> and I can't say that anymore. Thing. Yes. Uh, recent yeah. history. Yeah. Yep. Inside. All right. All right. Uh, so moving on to August. Um, August, uh, I kind of alluded to this. August 1st is Operation Tidal Wave, which is another American air raid from bases in North Africa going after German, not German, Romanian oil production. And Romania has been one of the chief suppliers of German oil, and I mentioned last podcast that this was pretty critical to the German war machine, and Romania had been concerned that they weren't going to be able to meet the needs of the German war machine, which is part of why uh, the Germans tried to go after the oil fields in the Caucasus, part of why it was so bad for the Germans when they failed. But the Allies, recognizing the importance of all that oil and what it would mean to their war effort, we launched a raid to try to cut it off in Romania. And if you've ever been to Ploiești, Romania, and I spent six months living there, there's a lot of oil fields there. Uh, the raid did not go particularly well. Uh, a, a large number of heavy bombers were lost uh, due to some navigational errors and some landmark confusions. Many of the bombers went to the wrong target, ended up overlapping targets with another bomb group, uh, one group showed up right as another group's bombs were detonating on the field. Um, and this was a, a bit of a unique raid in that it was a very low-level raid. These were four-engine heavy bombers that were coming in at an altitude of, you know, a few dozen feet. Uh, and there are some very famous pictures, if you look up Tidal Wave World War II or the Ploiești Air Raid, of these B-24 heavy bombers just, like, below smokestack level in the ployished uh, oil fields, completely surrounded by smoke and fire. Um, with all of that, the damage was not significant on this raid, uh, and losses were, were very heavy. Um, but that was, it was a very ambitious raid. Uh, it was at about the extreme limits of the range of Allied bombers, and it was the first serious effort to go after that uh, Axis oil production. And that effort would continue throughout the remainder of the war, and it would eventually be successful in, in, in really effectively starving the German war machine. Um, and we'll get into that when we hit 1944. So uh, elsewhere in August... Um, the battles in, in the Pacific continue on, um, and I'll, I'll kind of move over that, actually. Uh, by the 17th of August, Sicily is under Allied control in the Mediterranean. And out in the Pacific, uh, a young Navy officer named John F. Kennedy has his torpedo boat rammed and cut in half by a Japanese destroyer. Um, it doesn't go well for him, but... I don't so know. I how, a, if, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, quick aside. Uh, I think our last podcast we were discussing Malta and Mediterranean, uh, the way yes. that we were getting ships in in there, and uh, I had questions about Gibraltar. I did some research subsequent to that. Gibraltar was actually held by the British and had been for a while before. Yes. So. Uh, I didn't know that before, and it wasn't clear to me during the podcast that, that was the case. So, because I, I thought it was Spanish territory, because it looked like it was part of Spanish 
territory. But uh, Gibraltar was held by the British, so getting in to the Mediterranean via that the Strait of Gibraltar was uh, fine because Easy. the British. Yeah, it was once you were in the Mediterranean, getting anywhere else that you wanted to go. Right. So, yeah. Um, all right, let, let's move up to September here. Um, a couple things. We'll focus on Italy here. Um, Italy surrenders in secret on the 3rd of September. Uh, General Eisenhower reveals it on the 8th. The Germans respond by promptly losing their minds, taking over the defense of Italy. Uh, basically, I mean, if you're Germany, your ally Italy has just said, hey, we're done. We're not on your side anymore. Also, there's tons of guns, ammo, warships, all of these things in our country to your vulnerable south, and uh, we're letting the allies in. So the Germans do not react positively to this. Um, they, they immediately take over the defense of Italy and continue to resist the Allied invasion. It, it, it doesn't end up, like, well, changing anything. Um, the Allies continue to to land at Salerno and at Toronto, and Italy eventually falls. Corsica is liberated on October 4th, and, um, and the Germans are pushed back. Um, but one... one interesting little episode Mussolini has been arrested and is being held in some mountain fortress well the Germans want to get him out because he's Hitler's favorite puppet and so they actually rescue him in a commando operation where they land a um, a German light liaison plane in the courtyard of this mountain fortress in a uh, you know a, an airstrip that's maybe a, a few dozen yards long uh, they load him on and on that same airstrip, they managed to actually take off and evacuate Mussolini, um, which goes really well until he is recaptured and executed. Um, but Italy is uh, is is kind of the the main theme for September of 1943. Um, in the Pacific, the Solomon Islands campaign is effectively wrapping up. Uh, as the Allies continue to to move through the South Pacific, and and when I say Allies, I mean Australia, New Zealand, and the United States chiefly. Um, going towards the end of the year, um, let's talk about let's talk about the Schweinfurt raid. Uh, so we talked about how the the United States bombing raids into Germany and Fortress Europe were daylight raids, and they were able to be escorted part of the way by the Royal Air Force until they ran out of fuel, or by American Air Force uh, or Army Air Corps fighters until they ran out of fuel. Uh, we didn't have long-range fighters on in, in the inventory at the time, and so after a short while, they were on their own. And German fighters were a problem, but an even bigger problem was ground-based uh, anti-aircraft artillery, or flak which was just very large guns that would fire very large shells up into your bomber formation where they would explode and throw shrapnel all over the place and we lost a lot of bombers to flak um, as well as fighters uh, generally not at the same time but the fighters would make an attack the flak would take over the flak would stop the fighters would make another attack uh, so it was not great to be an Allied bomber crewman uh, in, well, on either side. Uh, the British at night had their bomber streams, but they also used a, a certain radar to home in on the beacons that were um, marking their targets. Well, the British figured out how to track the emissions of those radars, and so they would ride the beam straight up to the British bomber in a night fighter and, and blast it. And the British night bombing forces lost, uh, they, they suffered horrific losses. They continued bombing, um, but it, either way, it was not fun to be an Allied bomber crewman in 1943. And for the United States, this culminated on the 14th of October. Uh, 
known as Black Thursday. It was a raid on a ball-bearing plant in Schweinfurt, Germany. And the Allied planners had looked at key points in German industry, and they looked at ball bearings, and they realized, hey, these matter a lot. You know, an average German chunk of military equipment has ball bearings all over it. If we can knock out the production of these ball bearings, you know, this is better than knocking out a factory that produces fighters or tanks or, or artillery. This could hurt all of them at once. And so we launched a massive air raid against the Schweinfurt ball bearing plant. It did some damage, not enough to really impair production. And in exchange, we lost 60 B-17 heavy bombers. Um, a B-17 heavy bomber is crewed by 10 men. That was 600 American airmen lost in a day. Not including killed or wounded in the other bombers that actually made it back. And so uh, losses were so bad from Black Thursday that the United States actually suspended bombing raids for the remainder of 1943 until we could figure out how to make our, our force more survivable because the losses were not sustainable. Um, that said, the British continued bombing, and on uh, the 22nd, 23rd, they executed the Castle Raid, where they bombed Castle and created another firestorm that was absolutely devastating. Um, air raids continued in one form or another around the clock, but the U.S. Army Air Corps paused their daylight raids for for some months. And when they were able to resume, they, they made changes that we'll talk about next time that made their, their bombing runs a lot more survivable. Um, wrapping up pretty quick, uh, in November, going back to the Pacific, um, a, a number of, of different things have, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I missed one in October. In, uh, on October 6th, there's the Battle of Vela La Vela in the Solomons. This is the last actual Japanese victory. And, and I apologize, I misspoke earlier. This is the one where the, uh, a, a naval, a U.S. Navy destroyer force faced off against a Japanese destroyer force. Each side ended up losing one destroyer. But the key point was that this was a, a victory because the Japanese were, again, evacuating another beleaguered garrison from Vela La Vela. And they were able to hold the U.S. destroyer forces at bay long enough to save 600 Japanese soldiers. Um, it was effectively the last Japanese naval victory that was a, an actual victory in the Pacific. From there on, the the momentum was firmly on the Allied side. And the, just the accumulation of losses of experienced Japanese sailors, commanders, pilots, um, really began to show through the remainder of the war within the Japanese Navy. Um, but going forward into November um, in the Pacific, on the 20th, the U.S. Marines landed on Tarawa. This was a much bloodier campaign. The Marines lost uh, a thousand men killed and 2,000 wounded, uh, but they did manage to take Tarawa. And um, Tarawa was in the Central Pacific, and those losses that the Marines incurred, a lot of this was made public. Uh, there were war correspondents there, there were pictures, and they were grim. And all of these losses happened within, you know, you know just like three days. Uh, it was a frantic and, and bloody mess. And the question at the end was, okay, we took this island from the Japanese, and we did. Uh, but was it strategically worth it? And there was some divided opinion on that. Was was Tarawa really worth taking or was it not? Uh, a number of Navy admirals said, yeah, that was our, our doorstep or, or rather our, our, uh, our door into the Central Pacific. Others said, no, we didn't need to lose that many Marines for that island. Um, but the lessons learned on Tarawa uh, would be applied over and over again in the Pacific through uh, 
the campaign in Iwo Jima in 1944 in the Philippines and, and other places as well. Um, but that was kind of the major event in November. I already mentioned earlier uh, the America or the Allied Air Forces did bomb the Wehrmacht plant in December, so they hadn't completely suspended uh, bombing raids, but they weren't going into Germany. So they they flew over to Norway. They they knocked out that heavy water plant. Um, and you know they they were they were still doing some operations. The other major event was the Cairo conference, and followed by the Tehran conference. And the this started. Uh, President Roosevelt met in uh, Cairo with uh, Chinese authorities to plan the defeat of J- Japan, and from there went to Tehran, where he met with Joseph Stalin and Winston Churchill, and. They planned out what would become Operation Overlord, the Allied invasion of Europe from the West, as the Russians are now momentum is swinging onto their side following the German defeat at Kursk. The Russians are pushing in from the east. Uh, The Allies will also land somewhere in France and put pressure on the Germans from the west and just crush Germany between them. And that broad plan is laid out at the Tehran conference. Uh, Fun fact, or bit of trivia, President Roosevelt was transported to these conferences on board the battleship USS Iowa, uh, arguably the best and most modern battleship fielded by any Navy during the war. During the trip, that battleship was fired upon by a US destroyer who launched a a torpedo at it on accident. Oh my. Yeah. One that had the president on it. Yeah. Uh, President <laughs> Roosevelt. Who lost uh, their job there. <laughs> well, the entire destroyer was escorted back to port and the entire crew placed under house arrest okay. until they could figure out that, no, you're not actually foreign agents. You're just not in control of your ship. Um, How do you accidentally fire a torpedo at your own ship? Through a sequence of failures. Uh, I mean, it, oh, it was bad. Um, hey, I dare you to push the launch button. Yeah, it was almost like <laughs> that. Um, President Roosevelt, pro- you know, seems... think, think what you will of the man. But when he heard that this was happening, uh, people immediately rushed to get him uh, to a safe location. In a battleship, even if a torpedo is coming, there are places that are safe. Uh, Roosevelt in a stunning display of an American president being a boss, said, no, I want to watch, and um, wheeled his wheelchair over to a railing and watched this happen. Um, The torpedo did not hit. Uh, The Iowa promptly trained its guns on the uh, offending destroyer until it was escorted out of the formation. Um, But yeah, that that was great. Um, the last things that will that happened in 1943 are, are in December, and they set the stage for 1944 and really the the beginning of the end for World War II. On the 12th, Erwin Rommel, the Desert Fox, who has survived the North Africa campaign but lost, uh, you know, 200 and some odd thousand men, is made the head of Fortress Europe and is really in charge of the defense of Europe from the incoming Russians and the threat of Americans and, and Brits and Italians and others. Uh, Later in the month, General Dwight D. Eisenhower is appointed the Supreme Allied Commander for Operation Overlord, which will be the American, British, Canadian um, and, and French invasion of Normandy that will happen in the summer of 1944. Um, and and so that's where we will conclude. Uh, the 1943 has now seen momentum shift firmly to the side of the Allies. The Battle of the Atlantic has resulted in the German U-boats being pushed back. Uh, the Russians, at uh, phenomenal cost, are now, or rather the Soviets, are, are pressing the Germans to retreat on the Eastern Front. Uh, the British and the Americans are 
beginning to prepare for the invasion of France uh, and the subsequent drive into Germany. And the Allies are, are continuing to progress across the Pacific closer and closer to the Japanese homelands uh, through island hopping in the south and, and through taking other islands such as Tarawa in the Central Pacific. And with that, we will adjourn until part four, where we talk about 1944. And then part five? Yes, yes. probably. <laughs> okay, well, this is this is good. There's, there's uh, a lot here that I'm learning, and, and a lot of... Uh, I'm wondering if George Lucas really based Star Wars on World War II. Um, I, I don't know. Um, you know who another big fan of all of that the dam busters uh sir peter jackson of the of lord of the rings fame has reputed uh, reportedly been trying to make a recreation of the dam busters film for some years um hmm. but yeah if, if that ever takes off uh I, I would hope that he would be one to do it justice yeah so. sounds awesome um okay well uh before we uh bid our listeners adieu uh i wanted to thank uh so i think i mentioned in our previous podcast or one of the recent uh podcasts that we've done um new york has really stepped up its game as far as listening to our podcast a large number of listeners now from new york uh so uh, i was just in new york recently and it was incredibly cold and so i didn't appreciate that um but Otherwise, because you live in California, (laughs) that's true. Uh, But it was actually cold. It was legitimately cold, not California cold. But like when I used to live in Illinois, Illinois is also one of our big listener base. Uh, It wasn't Illinois cold quite. Uh, It was the end of March. And so, of course, it wasn't going to be that cold. But uh, it was it was legitimately um, it wasn't Arizona cold either for for Tim, um, who's gets a chill when he thinks about temperatures under 70 so that's right get your coats <laughs> um but yeah uh we will uh, be back again soon we've got a number of podcasts in the in the hopper like always but we uh um we've got um our next uh, world war two podcast which should be uh coming in the near future in the in the meantime follow us on spotify and apple podcast or whatever they're called itunes and